take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 139, the passage that Ryan just read. Thank you, Joshi, for leading worship. That was fantastic. Thank you, Ryan, as well. Thanks, Ryan, for the reading of Psalm 139. I, I heard a, a story this last week about the church father, Augustine, that he had once prepared a message on Psalm 138, but then the reader got up front before he was supposed to preach and read Psalm 139. And so instead of preaching his prepared message on Psalm 138, he decided to just preach an unprepared message on Psalm 139. All that to say that I'm glad Ryan read the right passage this morning. <laughs> because unlike Augustine, I won't be able to preach an unprepared sermon. Not a very good one anyway. And speaking of reading Psalm 139, before I get too far in the message this morning, I want you to hear this reading of Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit. And when I rise. You, you could see my thoughts. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before wood is on my tongue. You are created, you must be. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I praise you. I praise you. I praise you. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. My frame was not hidden from you. But I made a sacred place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You eyes saw my unseen body. My eyes were made for me. On the days ordained for me. Were written in your book. Before the manifold to be. How the vast are the sum of them. Were I to count them. I'll remember my glance of sand. I'm fearfully. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I read a few weeks ago that, uh, the country of Iceland had somehow ended Down syndrome in their country. And it was a shock to read that, but come to find out they hadn't found a cure for Down syndrome. Instead, 100% of the women who revealed, received a positive test for Down syndrome terminated their pregnancy with an abortion. And that was viewed as a cure by the country. This despite the fact that Families regularly report that having a Down syndrome family member was a net positive for their family. 
for them personally. And I want to be careful this morning before we get too judgmental towards that European nation because you need to keep in mind that in America today we have some of the most aggressive and permissive abortion policies in the world, in the Western world anyway, and as a state, Illinois has some of the most aggressive and permissive abortion policies in our country. All of this despite clear teaching in the scripture that God knits us together in our mother's womb. There's a lot more that I could say about that, and I'm going to say some more about that in just a second. But I want this to be part of a bigger message here in Psalm 139, and this is the message for God's people. Those of us who have been made in the image of God, those of you out there who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, all of us should fully submit ourselves to our maker. That's the message. Here's your outline. Let's work through this together. Last week in Psalm 139, we worked through verses 1 through 12, and I gave you four reasons to magnify your maker. God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, God's omnipresence, God's purity. Today, I want to give you four reasons to submit to your maker. Four reasons to submit to your maker. Here's the first reason, very, very simply. He created you. He created you, Christian. Just turn to your neighbor right now and say, he created you. He created all of us. David addressing Yahweh in verse 13. He says, for you formed my inward parts. Literally in Hebrew, my kidneys. You made my kidneys, Lord. And kidneys is this metaphor in the Hebrew scriptures for everything about you that is physical and metaphysical. All that is within you. David is saying, you made my body and you made my soul. I am made in the image of God. You formed my kidneys. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. That word knitted there could be translated intertwined or plated. God wove you together in your mother's womb like an embroidered quilt. He put you together. I mean, just think about the intricacies of the human body for just a second. Think about the elaborate ways that your nervous system and your skeletal system and your circulatory system come together in your body and you don't do anything to keep it going. I heard this last week that, let's just talk about the circulatory system for a second. Your circulatory system, Christian, has 60,000 miles of track inside of you. Did you know that? All inside of you pumping and racing blood and you don't, you don't even control that. That's all being done for you. Your arteries, your capillaries, your veins. The only time you think about it is when there's cloggage because your diet is bad. That's the only time we think about it. And yet God has put that together. God has woven that together inside of you. God, God laid that track. God knitted you together while you were still in your mother's womb. And yet, here's what I grieve. Here's what we should all grieve. An untrained, unlicensed abortionist can come and vacuum that up out of a mother's womb and dispose of it like it's medical waste. David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, verse 15, 
Literally, my, my bones are my skeleton. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That reference to depths of the earth, it's a metaphor for the womb of a woman. It's this secret place that only God knows. It, it, it might as well be the depths of the earth because nobody has access to it except for God, especially in David's day. But also that, that reference to the earth, I think here also that, that David is referencing that source material that God used when he created us. Because what did God do? He took dirt. He took earth. And he formed something. And he called it dirt. Adam means dirt. Adam means earth. God took this earth. God took this dirt and he created something beautiful. And he still does that in our day in the wombs of our mothers. Our God, church, is a creative God. He creates works of art. Do you think of him that way? Do you think of him as a creative God? Last week I mentioned those three great words that I learned in VBS. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. My gracious and long-suffering VBS teachers taught me those terms. But I learned a term this last week that they didn't teach me. They taught me that there's this omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe who loved me and died on the cross for me. That made a lasting impression upon my life. But here's a term they didn't teach me. Here, here's a new word for me even. Omnificent. Omnificent. Y'all familiar with that word? Omni means all. Facience meanings create. You might be familiar with the word maleficent. Maleficent means creating evil or the author of evil. God is not maleficent. God is omnificent. Omnificent, he's the creator of all. He is unlimited in his creative power. That's what that means. Our God is a creative God, a creative being. I know, I know this about some of you. Some of you out there, you have this insatiable desire to, to create and to build and to fashion stuff. Where does that come from? Why are you like that? Well, that's an aspect of the image of God that's been implanted in you. My wife is this way. She just has to make stuff. She's got to create stuff. And that's, that's the image of God that's being reflected in her. I told you last week that Psalm 139 is my wife's favorite psalm. It's quickly becoming my favorite psalm because of how intimately David interacts with the Lord, of how much theology is wrapped up in Psalm 139, and yet there's this great intimacy between David and the Lord, but it's also, it's also this amazing description of God's creative activity in, the human, in human conception, in human gestation even. David says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. That is without a doubt the most pro-life, anti-abortion, passage verse in the Bible I should say this though it's not the only one Job 31 15 says did not he who made me in the womb make him and did not one fashion us in the womb where does life start life life starts in the womb Isaiah 44 2 thus says the Lord who made you who formed you from the womb and will help you Jeremiah 7 Jeremiah 1 verse 5 Here's Yahweh talking to Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. If you're curious about my view on abortion, let me just be clear. I am thoroughly 
pro-life through and through. I believe that abortion is murder. I believe it stops a beating heart. It kills a preborn child made in the image of God. I've heard Christians, even well-meaning Christians at times say, well, you know, abortion is complicated. It's complicated. It's not complicated. This is not complicated. God creates in the womb and why am I pro-life? Psalm 139 is a big reason why. It's a big reason why. Some of you right now might say, Pastor Tony, that's politics. You can't talk politics from the pulpit. Everybody listening? This is not politics. This is theology. This is, this is morality. This is ethics. And the Bible is not silent on these things. And, and the reason people say that, you know, this, that's politics. It's because everything in their world is viewed through the lens of politics as if that's everything. Listen, church, way, way, way before there's politics. There is God and there is ethics and there is morality and there is theology. And this is clear from Psalm 139 and elsewhere. I'm pro-life, I'm against abortion because that is what the Bible teaches. Now let me say this too, I want you to hear my heart in this. And I need to say this. I wanna be pro-life but I also wanna be pro-grace. And I wanna acknowledge God's grace and God's forgiveness in our world. Is abortion an unforgivable sin? No, it's not. Can God redeem and save those who have had an abortion or performed abortions? Absolutely he can. And those of us who are in the pro-life camp need to always acknowledge that and never forget that. God's offer of grace is not limited to those who commit acceptable sins, as if there was such a thing. God saves sinners, and there are nothing but sinners in this room right now. Can I get an amen on that? Are y'all listening here? We got any sinners in this room? I am pro-life, but I'm also pro-grace. And that needs to be our, a part of our message to the world and to the, the culture of death that's taking place in our world right now. By the way, who wrote this psalm? Just think about that for a second. Who wrote Psalm 139? David did. Was David a sinner? You bet he was. His sins have been publicized for 3,000 years. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He conspired to get Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed on the battlefield. And Nathan came to David and he said, what you did is, is evil and wicked in the sight of the Lord. But did David commit some unforgivable sin? No, he did not. Was David beyond redemption? Absolutely not. In fact, centuries after David's death, centuries after David's death, he was still referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. So we aren't just pro-life, we're pro-grace. Let's get back to David's message here in Psalm 139. David says in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance, literally my embryo. That's what that means. Does that make you feel a little self-conscious? Like God saw me when I was an embryo. Well, give me some space, God. You know, that's really tight. God saw your unformed substance. And, you know, in David's day, they didn't have ultrasound technology. They didn't have 3D imaging, especially like we have now. So this, you know, the womb was this hidden place. Nobody could see in there. Nobody could get in there. God was in there. God is omnipresent. He saw David in his mother's womb. This is the God that David worships. David says, you saw me in that place. And he, he says, even more than that, he says, in your book were written 
every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God saw all of David's days before they even unfolded. You know, God is omnipresent in space, but he's also omnipresent in time. He knew the number of David's days. He knows the number of your days, Christian. Nobody dies too early. Nobody dies too late. God never says, oops, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that was going to happen. Each and every one of you is going to die when God has determined that you're going to die. Remember what Lottie Moon said, I am immortal till my work on earth is done. That's how we are in this world. God is omnipresent in space and time. He knows the number of our days. So why submit to this God? Why submit to David's God? Why submit to the God who's revealed as Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins? Why should you do as Paul says in Romans 12, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable as an act of worship? Why do that, Harvest Decatur? We should do that because God created us. He knitted us together in our mother's womb. Here's number two. Here's another reason to submit to your maker. Because God is superior to you in every way. David says in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I was listening to Jen Wilkin this last week. She was commenting on Psalm 139 and she said that Many women she interacts with have, the, have a wrong view of this psalm. She said actually that she went to this women's conference and all three of the main speakers, all three of them preached or taught on Psalm 139 as if they didn't, you know, coordinate beforehand, like maybe we should do something different. And all three of these women, as they taught, this really grieved her heart. The, the message, the sum of their message was, was essentially this, love yourself because you are awesome. That was the essence of the message that was conveyed and and they of course quoted verse 14 I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made as if that was the only verse in the chapter as if that was the only thing that Dave was trying to communicate in this psalm but Wilkin says this and I, I agree with her she says Psalm 139 isn't ultimately about how awesome we are it's about how awesome God is Psalm 139 isn't about improving our self-esteem it's about establishing a proper view of God and she says, she says this, the cure for body issues. She says the cure for self-esteem issues. The cure of these, for these things that we struggle with in our self-view isn't having a higher view of ourselves. It's having a higher view of God and the God who created us. That is powerful. If you grasp that, if you get that, that is, that is going to save you from so much self-loathing in this world. David says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Let me paraphrase the Hebrew for you here. David is saying, you are awesome, God, and I'm not. I can't even count the number of your thoughts. You are so vast. You are so impressive. You are so beyond me. If I were to count them, these magnificent thoughts of yours, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. You remember how David started this psalm. I'm glad that Ryan read it from start to finish for you. Because at the beginning of this psalm, you know, David doesn't start with, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, as important as that is. He starts with statements about God's omnipotence and God's omniscience and God's omnipresence. That's the cure for self-esteem issues. 
That's the cure for so much that's wrapped up inside of us, the sin, but also the false images of ourselves. Danny Aiken says it this way. He says, wrong ideas about God lead to wrong ideas about who we are. Wrong ideas about God lead to wrong ideas about who we are. Ergo, right ideas about God lead to right ideas about who we are. David says in verse 18, if, if I were to count them, your thoughts, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. In other words, you are otherworldly, God. You are truly and utterly awesome beyond what my mind can even conceive. And yet at the same time, you are with me and you love me. You are out of this world, God. You are more awesome than I can imagine, yet you are here with me. You saw me when I was an embryo. You are imminent and transcendent. You are superior and magnificent in every way, and yet you are with me, and you know me. You know me better than I know myself, and you love me. The greatest human longing to be truly known and truly loved by someone is only possible with God. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every dark secret in your heart, every evil deed you've ever done, and he still loves you. Do you know how powerful that is, church? We long for that. You can't find that in this world. You can't find it from your spouse, from your children, from your workplace, from this world. You can only find that in God. He knows you and he loves you. He knows you fully and he loves you fully. He is, this, I listened to a sermon this last week by Steve Larson on Psalm 139. And the title of his message, four words, are infinite, intimate God. That was the title of his sermon, our infinite, intimate God. And I'll be honest, there was a little sin in me when I read that because I thought, man, that's good. How come I didn't come up with that? <laughs> I was a little jealous, actually. Because and, and as I heard it, I was like, that's it. That's Psalm 139. That's it right there. Our infinite, intimate God. You know, four words. I've, you know, I've preached two sermons and thousands of words, and I, you know, I still haven't got to the bottom of this, but he did it with four words. I got some more words for you. Write this down as number three. I'm verbose, so forgive me. Here's another reason to submit to your maker. This next point might surprise you a little bit. This is where David, the psalmist, turns on a dime and he goes in a different direction with the psalm, a, a direction It's pretty aggressive, but write this down as number three. He opposes evildoers. Here's another reason to submit to your maker. He opposes evildoers. Those of you who are savvy Bible readers, are, you know what I'm about to say here, starting in verse 19. Those of you who have read the psalms a lot, you know that sometimes the psalm writer, the, the psalmist, David or whoever, they, they make an abrupt 90 degree turn. They go a different direction and it's, it's oftentimes surprising. I gave an example of that a few weeks back in Psalm 
110, where you know, David's writing about the Lord, who's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And David talks about the coming of the Lord and, and uh, how awesome a priest he is and how awesome a king he is. It's all very inspiring. It's all very non-threatening. But then David says, the Lord will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. And you're like, whoa, where, where did that come from? That's, that's not as Twitter worthy as the rest of the psalm. Nobody puts that on their Twitter feed. Except for Adam Godfrey. He might be the only one. And something like that is happening in Psalm 139. There's this 90 degree turn and, and it's all very inspiring, very motivational in verses 1 through 18. It's all very Twitter worthy. But then David says in verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked. Ooh. Oh, God, oh, men of blood, depart from me. Yikes, what happened to David? What happened to sweet little King David? What happened to all that talk about the embryo and in the mother's womb and all that? All of a sudden, it gets violent and aggressive towards evildoers. What is going on here in this psalm? Some scholars are so shocked by this, they say that this can't possibly be the same composition. They say that, you know, two psalms must have been at some point in time collated here into one psalm. And as far as I'm concerned, that view is baloney. Because if you read the psalms, you know that there's emotional volatility oftentimes in the psalms. And there are quick statements from one direction to another. And I think that's what David is doing here. Actually, Jen Wilkins, she said, <laughs> she said when she goes to these women's conferences, as people teach on Psalm 139, they always stop at verse 18. Nobody wants to teach on verse 19 and following because it makes people uncomfortable to talk about this. God opposing violence and, or evildoers and even David opposing evildoers. So what's David doing in verse 19? Why this abrupt change in language? I, I think this transition indicates that David is thinking God's thoughts after him. I think this is David's way of saying, your thoughts are so precious to me, God. Verse 18, I know you hate the wicked. I hate the wicked too. So why don't you do something about it, God? You're omnipotent. You're all-powerful. Why do you tolerate this? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. They speak against you with malicious intent, verse 20. Do something, God. Your enemies take your name in vain. You created them, God. Why don't you decreate them? Why don't you take them out? And then David says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Verses 19 through 22, it's, it's an example of what we call imprecatory psalm or imprecatory statements. This is David's call for vengeance. This is David asking God to show his power and eradicate the wicked. He's invoking judgment on them. This is David's way of sharing God's thoughts after him. This is David's way of saying, I am with you, Lord, and I'm against those who are against you. 
Now, I, let me speculate for just a second. I can't say this for sure, can't quote chapter and verse, but I actually think that David wrote this psalm as a younger man before he became king or early on in his reign in the pre-Bathsheba era. And I think that because I have a hard time seeing David write something like this after Bathsheba. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Would David say that after Bathsheba? Oh, men of blood, depart from me. Would David say that after he conspired to kill Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband? Would he have said that after Nathan the prophet came to him after his sin and said, you are that man. You are the wicked one. You are the one who has done this evil and vile thing before the Lord. Would David have said Psalm 139? written that or would he have written Psalm 51 have mercy on me O God according to your steadfast love according to your abundant mercy blot out my transgressions wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me Here's the thing about imprecatory psalms. Let me just address this because if you read the psalms, and I hope you do read the psalms, you're going to come across statements like this, this invoking of judgment, and you're, you're going to wonder, how do I put this? Should I pray this? Should I say this? You know, what do I do with this? So let me just give you some rules of thumb here. First of all, I would encourage you to not pray like the psalmist prays. You don't invoke judgment upon God's enemies. Leave that to the Lord. Keep in mind here that the psalmist inspired by the Holy Spirit is doing something and communicating something about God's justice and God's coming vengeance. And, you know, Jesus in many ways turned the tables on this for us with the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus would tell us instead of invoking judgment upon our enemies, pray for your enemies and love those who hate you, love those who curse you. And that's because we're kids of grace. We're not kids of judgment. And Jesus has purchased our salvation with grace. But also, just another word here in ter terms of understanding these imprecatory psalms. Keep in mind that the Holy Spirit, inspiring these authors now, are communicating something about God's character and God's essence. God will ultimately slay the wicked. He will. God will ultimately, in his perfect time, bring judgment upon those who oppose him. God will do that in his own time and according to his own ways. But praise God, he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And he is waiting now before he pours out his judgment upon this world. And so we, like the Apostle Paul tells us, should Obey Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Our job is not to hate the sinner. Our job is to hate the sin. Maybe that sounds a little oversaid in our day. Hate the sin, love the sinner, but it's true. It's true. This is what we're called to. Hate the sin, love the sinners, 
And here's what we're called to as well. Not just hate the sin that's in the world, that's out there, that's in our spouse. We're to hate the sin that's inside of us. And that's the priority in terms of a New Testament ethic for us as Christians. To hate the schemes of the devil that are inside of our own soul. For Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh or blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the battle is fought. That's where we're called to oppose our enemies. That is the place where the condemnation of evil needs to take place in a Christian, to condemn the evil inside of our own hearts. And you know what? I think David has a sense about this. I, here's why I think that. I think David, even writing verses 19 through 22, at least in part, knows that there's something inside of him that needs to be dealt with because look what he says in verse 23. I think it's actually important what he doesn't say because he doesn't say, search them and see if there be any grievous way in them. Those enemies of yours that I hate. Search them, Lord. Search them and test their thoughts. Instead, what does David do? He gets personal. He gets transparent before the Lord. He invites God to search him out. Search me, God. Test me. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Pray that, harvest decator. You know, okay, yeah, you can't pray. Verses 19 through 22, the imprecatory Psalms. Okay. Pray verse 23 and 24. Verbatim, pray this. This is absolutely consistent with what the New Testament teaches us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. This psalm, I know, it's like an emotional roller coaster. You're kind of all over the place. And it's also a theological tour de force. As David talks about how awesome God is. And also you see the volatility in David going up and down and all over the place. And God is this steady rock. And David is leading on that rock, asking even that rock to test him, to search him, to try me and know my thoughts. If you remember from verse 1, David said, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. That was presented as invasive you know that was presented as if you know God where where can I flee from your presence everywhere I go there you are you're you're everywhere but by the end of the psalm David doesn't see this as invasiveness anymore he comes full circle and he says he invites the Lord search me know my heart I'm okay with you being invasive Lord I'm okay with you getting in my business and showing me those things that I need to change. I read a commentator this last week who said that Psalm 139 is a celebration of God's invasion of our privacy. What do y'all think about that, Harvest Decatur? Celebrating God's invasion of our privacy. Search me, Lord. Search me. Try me. Know my heart. And some of you might say, why, you know, why is God telling David to do this? God already knows what's in our heart. He doesn't need an invitation. No, that's right. He doesn't. I, 
David's not giving God permission to do this. David is telling God, search my heart and reveal it to me so that I might deal with it, so that I might change it. That's the cry of his heart. That's what he desires. Here, he's he's surrendering before the Lord. Here I am, Lord, before you. Search me. Refine me. Test me. And see if there be any grievous way in me. Kick my tires, Lord. Check my oil. Check my transmission fluid. See if there's anything inside of me that's, that's gunking up my fuel tank and keeping me from running the race of life as good as I could. I need a checkup, Lord. Deal with whatever sin is inside of me, anything that's inf- offensive inside of me, anything that's grievous to you inside of me. You ever prayed a prayer like this before the Lord? You ever been this transparent before God and just laid yourself open and said, God, I am a work in progress. To be honest, I'm a piece of work. And I need you to deal with me. And I need you to show me those things about myself that I don't know. Some of it I do know. But here I am, Lord. Test me, refine me. See if there be any grievous, any, any wicked way in me. And then finally, lead me in the way everlasting. Write this down as number four in your notes. Here's another reason to submit to your maker. He leads you in the way everlasting. He leads you in the way everlasting. How does God lead us in the way everlasting? How does God lead us into eternal life? How did God make a way for us to be whole and perfect and purified? so that we might enter into his presence as a recipient of his mercy and not a recipient of his judgment. Let me be clear about this. A thousand years after David wrote this psalm, a greater than David, son of David, came to earth and he took on flesh and he died a ghastly death upon us the cross for us. And this person, Jesus Christ, was the only man who God searched and found no guilt. He's the only man who was tried and tested in no grievous way was found inside of him. And this Jesus Christ became the perfect sacrifice of payment for my sin and for your sin so that we might become the saved children of God and this God in the flesh Savior Jesus Christ he offers us eternal life he leads us in the way of everlasting life so hear me on this this is the most important thing if you didn't hear anything else I said today hear this Hear this. Jesus Christ, he made a way so that when you die, so that when you leave this world, when your days are up, 
And they are numbered, by the way. The moment of your death, you can actually enter into the presence of God forever, for eternity. He died on the cross. He paid for your sin so that your faith in him might make a way for you after your death to enter into the eternal way, to enter into eternal life, to enter into the presence of the Lord forever and ever and ever. Jesus Christ did that for you. Jesus Christ did that for you. And the only way that's possible, the only way that you can, you can have that is through faith in his finished work, his death upon the cross, his resurrection. God made one way. He didn't make two ways. He didn't make three ways. He didn't make ten ways. He made one way. There's one everlasting way. And it's through faith in Christ that you can have eternal life. Do you have that? You know, when I was in college, Campus Crusade, we, the question we would start whenever we would talk to people and share their, our faith is, if you were to die today, where would you go? You know, what would happen to you? And I heard the craziest answers to that question. There's a lot of people out there who have no assurance of salvation after they die. What about you? I'm not responsible for this entire world, but I want you to know the people in this room right now, if you were to die today, what would happen to you? Are you on the everlasting way? Are you going to enter into the presence of the Lord forever? You can. You can have that assurance. And it's only possible through faith in Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection. I heard this last week, this great story about Martin Luther. You know, at the end of Luther's life, he was a battered and broken man. And he had, he had absorbed throughout his life a lot of physical and emotional pain. And he was ready to die. He was actually pretty young by today's standards, but he was ready to die. And he, he wrote a letter to his beloved wife, Katie, and he told her that he was nearing death. And you can imagine his wife was inconsolable when he said this. Because here was this woman that Luther had you know, sprung out of the nunnery and he was a monk. She was a nun. They got married and it was a scandal. And you would think that those two would have a horrible marriage, but they didn't. They loved each other. They had a beautiful, wonderful, happy marriage. They had six kids together. So this, I mean, this happily married couple, you can imagine that when her beloved Martin told her that he was near death, Katie was inconsolable. And so here's what Martin Luther said to her. He said, dear Katie, don't cry for me when I die. I'm going home to the only person in this world who loves me more than thee. I'm going home to the only person in this world who knows me better than you and could love me more than you. What's Psalm 139 about? What's it about? What does it teach us? How does this psalm instruct us? It teaches us about a God who knows us completely. Better than your spouse knows you. Better than you know yourself. He knows everything about you and he loves you. And he's made a way for you after death to enter into eternity with him. That's our God. That's the person who's revealed as Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Worship him. Submit to him. 
Harvest Decatur. Let's bow in a word of prayer and then we can take communion together. Jesus, in just a few moments, we're gonna remember you. We're gonna eat the bread that represents your body broken on the cross. We're gonna drink of this cup that symbolizes your blood shed for us. And Jesus, we worship you now, not only as the God who died for us and suffered for us, but as the God who created us in our mother's womb, the God who sees us when no one else can see us, the God who knows more about us than we know about ourselves. yet loves us. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, that your love is a perfecting love. That you receive our prayers to you to search us out, test us, refine us, see if there be any grievous way in us. God, before we take of these elements, before we partake in this this ordinance that Christians have participated in for 2,000 years, God, we pray collectively as a church, search our hearts, Lord. Let me encourage you to pray that right now, harvest. Search my heart, Lord. Is there sin that is unconfessed? Are there ways, Lord, that I'm I'm not living for you like I could? Is there evil that I'm harboring in my heart? God, expose it, change it, help me to repent and turn from it. Not in order to be saved, but because I am saved, because I'm a follower of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we invite you now as we hold these elements to expose our sins. Show us, God, as only you can, those things in our lives that need to change. God, do that work now. I pray. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.